Bishop took 20 years to write this poem. Isn't that crazy? Poetry is, um, I think it's a very serious endeavor. And yeah, it's not so much about maybe rushing and trying to get a poem to a place, maybe we can get it published. You know, maybe that's not the point. You need to live with the poem, let the poem breathe, and I think really labor. Excellent. There are reasons to write poetry that far that are far more important than getting it published. I think too, we learn that if we experience a moment or we have a moment of reflection and we write about it or we write about certain feelings that we've had in our lives, that writing about something takes a lot longer than living it. I don't want to give the impression that I'm suggesting that every poem we write, we need to take 20 years on. Right. You know, Ode to a Nightingale by Keats was written, apparently, with good, we have good sources to confirm that it was written in one morning, which is kind of death. In both of, I'm realizing now that both of these facts are depressing in different ways. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but you see the point I'm trying to make. There's no one right, right way to do it. Sometimes it takes 20 years. Sometimes we're lucky. The mm -hmm. lightning strikes yeah. and we get the poem that we get. Hello again. In today's recording, I'll chat with Hannah and Rachel about Elizabeth Bishop's book of poems, Geography 3. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you cultivate a bit of stubbornness and patience, which are perhaps the two most important qualities in a writer. To start with the quote of the day, this comes from Elizabeth Bishop herself. There's a couple little quotes here I'd like to share. She once wrote, this mysterious thing we call inspiration isn't that easy to pinpoint, but it's the strange and wonderful thing about writing poetry. You can never predict where or when or even why something moves you to write a poem. That's what I mean when I said a poem comes in many guises. A poem may be inspired by something that happened 20 years ago, but until I've written it, I may not have realized that at the time I was greatly moved. I think you have to trust that the eye and mind are constantly recording and be patient enough for them to reveal what they have observed. Elsewhere she writes this, It takes so many thousands of things coming together at the right moment just to make a poem that no one could ever really separate and say this did this, that did that. I love these a lot. It's one of you know America's best poetic practitioners admitting that it's extremely mysterious how these poems get written. Something we can't articulate or explain. I think it's something we wouldn't want to be able to articulate or explain, because if we did, suddenly all of the mystery and awe and wonder would evaporate from these beautiful poems. We want them to feel slightly miraculous and irreducible. For more on this and a few of our favorite Elizabeth Bishop poems, let's go into that chat with me and Hannah and Rachel. Tell me which poem from this book, because I said maybe we could each pick one. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know which one each of you picked. Um, I picked one art. Okay. And I picked the moose. Okay, very good. That means we will, that, 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 I mean, I shouldn't maybe reveal this, that I had hopes or, you know, certain expectations, but that's really good. Because I thought, oh, if they don't pick the moose or one art, I'm going to have to squeeze those in because those are really good poems. <laughs> no <way. laughs> I mean, in the waiting room is great, but we can talk about that in class. That was my second choice. Yeah. yeah. Does, does one of you feel okay starting? 
And by starting, what this will mean is that you'll read the poem. And then I just want your classmates to hear why you love this poem, specific reasons why you love this poem, and specific things that you think it can teach us about how to write poetry. And, and along the way, of course, you know, talk about this, talk about that. What do you guys think? That yeah. sounds good. That um, sounds good? Okay, so are you going to read one art? Yes. Okay, excellent. So, so go ahead, take it away, read it, and then, yeah, just talk for a few minutes about why you love it and what it can teach us about poetry. One art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last, or my next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the doking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it might look like, write it, like disaster. I think to start off, it's a villanelle that doesn't feel like like a strict form or, I don't know, maybe a better way to say that. It's, it's in a form, but it doesn't feel like it is conforming or that it's forced or it's trying to force rhymes or a kind of structure. The repetition seems natural with with the train of thought and the progression of ideas within the poem. And so it's just, a, I think, very masterful use of Villanelle and a form. Another thing is it does have a lot, has some of the sensory detail that um, Elizabeth Bishop is fantastic at. The Lost Door Keys, Our Badly Spent, um, My Mother's Watch, Two Lovely Cities, Two Rivers, A Continent. But it also actually has quite a bit of abstraction for a Bishop poem. And again, I think it's, a sign of her mastery here because she's not using these abstractions to try to thrust emotion at us, but she's using these, I think, to describe ideas that, that aren't as easily conveyed through sensory details. So what she can convey through sensory details, she does, but the, the abstraction she does to kind of frame or cast a different light on these details, um, without them, you know, we'd have maybe images, again, the lost orchids, our badly spent, the two rivers, a continent, you, but what would that mean? Um, but I think all this abstraction is kind of maybe a reference point for us to interpret or to um, mm -hmm. visualize those sensory details. These are excellent. So this, I just want to echo and amplify a few of the things that you say. It's a villanelle, which is a very rigorous form, right? So third line becomes the ninth line becomes the, help me do the math here, 12th line. Yeah. <laughs> Sixth line is the, Dun, dun, dun. Can I do the math? 15th line? So. People can look up Villanelle. Just Google Villanelle, you know, and we all know the form. <laughs> and then, of course, both of those refrain lines become the last two lines of the poem. I'll ask the question and give one possible answer, but I'd love to hear you guys elaborate on how she does this. Um, Rachel, you say that you, you phrased it excellently. It is in a strict form, but it doesn't seem to conform to the form. It seems effortless. It seems accidentally to just mm -hmm. kind of land in this form. And there could be like eight answers to the question, how does she pull this off, this balance of 
formal rigor and organic seeming organic spontaneity possibly one answer would be enjambment like so enjambment people know what enjambment is but you enjambment is when the sentence keeps going but the line stops so for example i lost my mother's watch and look my last comma or line break next to last so the sentences keep going but the lines stop and this gives the poem the sense that it's breaking loose of those formal bounds and that especially like last or she's doing a rhyme on two words here mm-hmm. that rhymes with disaster and master last or it gives the sense that she yeah this utterance is going to keep going whether the poem likes it or not and it also just accidentally falls into this form but what what else would you say if i asked you how is it a poem that is so formally controlled but doesn't feel too controlling or too controlled like what other technical moments in the poem could we point to to help us answer this her form enhances her poem because of the subject choice of her poem and the meaning that she's trying to relay like this form i as i was reading it i felt that there was um a restraint in emotion because we're looking at the loss of all these things right an, an hour lost, badly spent, but also like cities and continents, which are almost put on the same playing field because it's in such a strict form. Right. Um, and so, right, it makes us ask this question, like, well, are these things really all equal? Mm-hmm. Um, along with the repetition here, I think something that I noticed was we hear disaster, we hear master over and over again, which almost mimics the obsessiveness we feel when we do something. We're constantly asking ourselves, when did I last see this? Where did I, where would I put this? And it can't really leave our minds until we find it and obtain it once again. And so I think when we are choosing a form for our poem, it has to mimic some of the things that we're trying to relay to our Excellent. Reading. Yeah, I mean, there are certain, so there are sonnets, there are villanelles, there are sestinos, there's heroic couplets, there's blank verse, on and on, you know, limericks. I mean, limericks is a good maybe example to bring up. I mean, a limerick has a certain tone that is the result of its shape. So there are certain topics that the limerick is perfect for, kind of jokey, slightly inappropriate body jokes. You know what I mean? This is punchy, short and snappy and punchy. The villanelle is especially because it works with this series of repeated lines. Hannah, you're absolutely right that it so wonderfully embodies the mind's obsessive repetitions. So if you're wanting to write a poem in which that is about loss. I'm looking, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Yeah, the villanelle is great because it obsesses, it circles and recircles and circles back on itself. So one reason we feel this is the perfect box for this utterance is because it's the perfect box for this utterance. If it was a different topic, we might feel more tension between the form and the content. I want to circle back and allude to something else that Rachel said too about the abstractions. Like you said, Rachel, that they cast a light on the images, which is absolutely true. The images... I love this poem. I think this is an immortal and lasting poem, but the images are, and I mean this kind of as a compliment, slightly generic. Yes. Car keys, a watch, a house. Even when she gets down to this person in parentheses, the joking voice, a gesture I love. I mean, she doesn't even tell us what gesture. It's just a gesture, some generic gesture, you know? But we know that these things mean a lot to her because they are... a a light is shining on them. And what is the light that's shining on them? It's these abstract refrains. It's not hard to lose these. It's not hard to lose these. It's not hard to lose these repeated over and over again. (laughs) What is the effect of this repetition on you? Well, with that line specifically, it's not hard to master. I think it's kind of playing into human fallibility and just 
the way that we, yeah, we fail and we mess up and we lose relationships. We lose things that are actually really important to us. Um, you know, there's the you, but there's also the line, like, I lost my mother's watch. And for some reason that really strikes me. It's like, is her mother still there? Like, what does that mm-hmm. watch mean to her? So that is one sense. But then you also have the repeat of the word disaster and it's framed. It's not a disaster. It's not a disaster, which just seems like um, a kind of denial, you know, mm-hmm. until the end, though it may look like. And then she she does say like disaster, but she doesn't even say it is a disaster. It's like a disaster. She can't even bring herself. Yeah. To say, this is a disaster. Anyway. Yeah. I that, that I mean, that's excellent. Denial mm-hmm. is the word. I mean, the more she says it, the less I believe her. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Um, this isn't hard. What's happening to me is no big problem. No problem. No problem. She says again and again, uh-huh. problem is getting bigger and bigger. Right. And you're absolutely right, Rachel. She can't even, and Hannah, you used the word restraint earlier. There's a, there's a, I mean, that's happening all over the poem, restraint, but another thing, the, the extreme version of restraint, stifling is happening to the poem. She kind of stifles this emotion. Yes. She can't say this is a disaster. The closest she can get to it, it may look like a disaster. And even this beloved who is in parentheses, you know, even the parentheses, like even losing you, parentheses, the joking voice, the gesture I love, that's probably my favorite use of parentheses in all of literature, (laughs) maybe, because she wants to bury this memory. This memory is too painful. It must be buried. So she kind of tries to hide it in this parenthetical aside. And the same thing happens with the writer. Yeah, total denial. So the form enacts the sense of denial. And this is what this is what I and you, Rachel, meant about the shining a light on, yeah, okay, the generic images, car keys, rivers, but they're tinged in this aura, this light of the extremely painful denial of grief, you know? So what does this poem teach me about how to write poetry? One thing it teaches me is that if we want to use abstractions successfully, one way to do that is to use them ironically, mm-hmm. to, to use them to mean something different from what they say. Yeah, I think a line like, I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster, is only a successful line of poetry because it so clearly means the opposite. Right. right. Because we hear stifled behind it, this is a big problem for me. This is a disaster. So irony, you know, use irony. Okay, um, what else should we say about this poem before we move on? I'm sad to leave it. So I just want to make sure that anything else that needs to be said about it is said. Um, I really admire her musicality here, the ease of the rhymes, again, just don't seem um, forced. And then you've also just got, I I don't know, uh, the pacing of the poem. uh, One that comes to mind is the practice of losing farther, losing faster. I, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, if it's following any kind of necessarily strict formal rhythm, but that moment things accelerate and I don't know, the content in the poem is accelerating and things are becoming more urgent. And so mm. even when she's saying it's not a disaster, there are technical elements that are queuing us in as well, you know, that things yes. are becoming more urgent and more dire. You're absolutely right. I couldn't exactly name metrically what's happening in that moment, but you're absolutely right that it feels slightly accelerated and tripping. Yes. The, pra- the Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Maybe it's the repetition there places and names and where it was you meant to travel. Maybe it's the combination of those ands, this and that and that. Mm-hmm. Things yeah. are starting to pile up. Yeah. Right. How wonderful that she changes the repetition too. I mean, it's not, some some strict villanelles are very strict. I mean, there's that famous villanelle, do not go gentle into that good night where the lines are repeated exactly without any variation. Right. 
but maybe the first answer to the question, why doesn't this formal poem feel too formal in a bad way is because the refrains are slightly revised. Mm-hmm. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. None of these will bring disaster. Their loss is no disaster. I love that she slips in in the second to last line, the art of losing is not too hard to master. So <laughs> already, like the cracks, the cracks are starting to show and she can't yeah. really stifle it. And it's like being in a submarine where you're too far below the surface of the ocean and the pressure is building and suddenly like the water starts leaking and it's not too hard. Okay, I, I admit it, it's a, it's a little bit hard, but it's not, it's not too hard. There's still <laughs> lots of denial, but right. the cracks are showing. What a great poem. Should we move on? Yeah. yeah. I, we can do Crusoe in England. My goodness, I, I'll try to go fast. So we all know this novel, whether or not we've read it, we know it. Robinson Crusoe stranded on this island for 20 something years has to kind of rebuild himself as a person and as kind of civilization of one. Eventually, after many years of being stranded on this island, Friday, he sees footprints in the sand in this very famous moment. And this man named Friday, who he befriends slash enslaves, very strange relationship. (laughs) Um, Elizabeth Bishop is imagining what happens to this fictional character after he's rescued and returns home. So that's why it's called Crusoe in England. I want to kind of highlight. So let me do it this way. We have highlighted several things already in our conversation about one our several important things. We've talked about images versus abstractions. We've talked about pressure and restraint. We've talked about the form of a poem and the ways in which the form can or should perhaps echo the content. We talked, we didn't really name it this way, but something we should maybe name is like, I think Elizabeth Bishop teaches me a lot about what not to say in poetry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? One art is a successful poem because she forbids herself from saying certain things. She doesn't come out right out and say, I am so sad. I am so sad. So she, I think a lot of poems fail because their authors, a lot of my poems fail because I, in early drafts, say things I don't need to say. Yeah. So she knows what not to say. I don't know what to call that exactly. She knows what not to say. So I've already talked too much and I haven't even started reading the poem. (laughs) Uh, let me yeah I'll just kind of skim I'll just kind of skim we'll see what happens so Crusoe in England a new volcano has erupted the papers say and last week I was reading where some ship saw an island being born at first a breath of steam 10 miles away and then a black fleck basalt probably rose in the mate's binoculars and caught on the horizon like a fly they named it but my poor old islands still unrediscovered unrenameable none of the books has ever got it right so she's setting up the rhetorical situation of the poem. She, she has to kind of, this is important, I think, because she has to kind of explain to people reading the poem what has prompted this utterance from Robinson Crusoe. Why is he, why is he beginning to describe his island? He has to set the record straight. Volcanoes, goats, turtles. Let me start reading at the stanza that says, my island seemed to be. My island seemed to be a sort of cloud dump all the hemisphere's leftover clouds arrived and hung above the craters. There's all these volcanoes. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Was that why it rained so much? And why sometimes the whole place hissed? The turtles lumbered by, high-domed, hissing like tea kettles. How great is that? (laughs) It's so good, right? And I'd have given years or taken a few for any sort of kettle, of course. The folds of lava running out to sea would hiss. I'd turn, and then they'd prove to be more turtles. The beaches were all lava, variegated, black, red, and white, and gray. 
and marbled colors made a fine display. And I had water spouts, oh, half a dozen at a time, far out. They'd come and go, advancing and retreating, their heads in clouds, their feet in moving patches of scuffed up white. Glass chimneys, flexible, attenuated, sacerdotal beings of glass. I watched the water spiral up in them like smoke. Beautiful, yes, but not much company. This is a horrible question. Isn't she so good at seeing and imagery? We talked about the ways in which the imagery in one art is slightly generic. I feel the exact opposite in this poem. Yeah, right. She's just so good at seeing the world. I can't frame this as a question. She's just so good at seeing the world and describing it. These glass chimneys. What does a water spout look like? A glass chimney. What does a turtle look like? A kind of giant hissing tea kettle. <laughs> it's just so good. Why does the next stanza do what it does? <laughs> we'll try that. I don't know. Maybe that's a stupid question. So, so far the poem is rhetorical explanation and a bunch of imagery. Let me describe my island. If you are the poet and you're writing this poem, okay, I need to now like something has to change. I need a new ingredient in my poem. So the question is what new ingredient is introduced in this stanza and why is that ingredient important? That's an okay question. Yeah, here we go. I often gave way to self-pity. Do I deserve this? I suppose I must. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Was there a moment when I actually chose this? I don't remember, but there could have been. What's wrong about self-pity anyway? With my legs dangling down familiarly over a crater's edge, I told myself pity should begin at home. So the more pity I felt, the more I felt at home. Now, I'm not asking you two to interpret this or tell me the true <laughs> secret meaning, but that's a horrible way to read poetry. All I'm asking you to do, this isn't imagery. No. It's a new thing. It's a new ingredient. So what is this ingredient? What what could we call it? And why does Elizabeth Bishop feel like this is now the time to introduce it in this poem? I feel like it's almost like a dialogue between herself, mm. like a self-reflection as well. Yeah, it seems kind of stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe just getting into the psychological, I mean, we have this vision of the island, but then... Maybe we need to know what was the impact of this life, mm -hmm. this kind of desolation for, you know, Crusoe or perhaps for Bishop, you know. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. It's a dialogue. So we see that we see the conflicted nature of the self. So this makes sense to me. She's thinking, okay, I've done the imagery thing, but this poem teaches me, I'm now not talking in her voice, but this poem teaches me, Michael, is a poem can't do the same thing for too long before it needs to do something else. Right. You know, so, okay, what new thing can I do? Um, I can get psychological. Yeah. I can show the effect of this imagery on the mind. Mm -hmm. And I can depict that mind as divided and full of tension, which is exactly what that stanza does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I won't read what comes next. She makes this, she, he, wonderfully ambiguous. We'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. I like that, that comment, Rachel, where, yeah, something about this character that is clearly letting Bishop express something about her own life and mind and situation. Mm -hmm. There was one kind of berry, dark red. I tried it one by one and hours apart, right? No ill effects. She made a home brew, fizzy drink, yeah. She would get slightly drunk. He would get slightly drunk and whoop and dance among the goats. Why didn't I know enough of something? Greek drama or astronomy? The books I'd read were full of blanks. The poems, well, I tried reciting to my iris beds, then she quotes this very famous Wordsworth poem, they flash upon the inward eye, which is the bliss. The bliss of what? One of the first things that I did when I got back was look it up. Now, the line, the Wordsworth line is the bliss of solitude. Mm 
they flash upon the inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. So the speaker is telling us, I looked it up. I know that word. Why doesn't Crusoe tell us? I looked it up and discovered that the word was solitude. He withholds. Again, she's very good at knowing what not to say. So why doesn't she tell us this? Well, I think one reason would be because they can't honestly say that, maybe even lying, because having lived in solitude and maybe found that it's not bliss at all. Mm. So they found the answer, but it's maybe something they honestly can't say or share with somebody perhaps. That it's too, he, Crusoe disagrees with the statement so much that it's like Wordsworth, you have no idea what's what torture solitude is. Yeah. Yeah, I like that answer. Right. And maybe just another note on this. Crusoe was written before Wordsworth, right? Yeah. That's right. And, uh, this is just interesting as well. Just kind of letting us in. Never noticed that. Yeah. And so I, I feel like um, that's just um, kind of letting us, cueing us um, the fact that this might also be more Bishop than Crusoe, right? Mm-hmm. Than this kind of Crusoe quote speaker. I mean, yes, but also, yeah, chronologically, there'd be, he had, wouldn't have had access to Wordsworth. So <clears throat> I can't believe I never made that connection. I've been reading and loving this poem for years. Um, no, you're so right, Rachel. I'm now Googling Robinson Crusoe, published in 1719. Yeah. So even if we think that um, Crusoe, even if, and, and wonderfully, we don't we should get bogged down in this book, but for a while, this book was marketed as a true story, a true nonfiction account. And it was just kind of discovered that it was totally fiction, but it was based on similar events. Even if a Crusoe-like person did survive, he's not going to live long enough, published yeah. in 1719, he's not going to live long enough to be able to read Wordsworth as an old man. What a great thing to say. Um, An absolutely conspicuous anachronism. Wow, what a great catch. Okay, should I keep reading? Yes. I love this very bland language, right? I was a goat too, or a gull. Ba, ba, ba. And shriek, shriek, shriek. Ba, shriek, ba. That makes me laugh every time. I don't know what to say about it. It's just like so tonally childlike or childish. I don't know. I want to get to some of these more horrifying moments. One billy goat would stand on the volcano I'd christened Mount Despoir or Mount Despair. I'd time enough to play with names and bleat and bleat and sniff the air. I'd grab his beard and look at him. Love this image. He's so desperate for company, right? Like, (laughs) commune with me, goat. Give me something back here. His pupils horizontal narrowed up and expressed nothing or a little malice. I got so tired of the very colors. One day I dyed a baby goat bright red with my red berries just to see something a little different. And then his mother wouldn't recognize him. I think, oh, there, this is another one art moment. So please, one of you tell me, as a poet, what are we learning from this moment, right? Like this is a how to write poetry class. This isn't a let's interpret poetry class. So I am not asking you to interpret this moment. I'm asking you to express your reaction as a reader to this moment, what emotions it stirs up in you, why those emotions are good to stir up in a reader and how she pulls this off. What can we mimic here? I dyed a baby goat bright red, and then its mother wouldn't recognize him. And then he changes the subjects. Dreams were the worst. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Tell me more about that goat. That's a horrible thing to say. And then just pass over. What's going on here? I think it once again echoes this idea of knowing what not to say to continually like reveal the inner workings of the poet or or the, the situation that is here at hand, because we could go on and... and Bishop could write, his mother wouldn't recognize him and was all alone like me. And now I have to take yes. care of the goat. Right. But like, 
that's not what Bishop's trying to get at here. We're trying to get at the art of, or not the art of loss, but like this idea of being alone and solitude and relations not being there anymore. Think of how much worse the poem would be if it did what you just described. His mother wouldn't recognize him. I felt very guilty. It was very sad. The poor baby goat slowly died over many days. And I cried myself to sleep for four nights in a row. I mean, by then it becomes, you're laughing, and rightly so. It becomes sentimental and trite and cliche. So you need to allude to very intense emotions like this. But all you need to do, I mean, something Zimborska said, I think I alluded to this in a podcast. Zimborska said in an interview somewhere that you have to, poems have to contain strong Mm. emotions, but strong emotions are already strong. So what you need to do as a poet, what we all need to do as poets is to fight against the emotions. Otherwise the balance, it gets way out of whack, right? So what are we learning here? We're learning to glance only briefly and with one eye at strong emotions and then immediately just keep going. Right. Less is more. I think that's what we're learning. Less is more. I feel like too, when, when we do give too much, we rob the reader of really feeling that emotion on their own and reconciling with that emotion. When someone tells us how to feel or, or gives us a situation where we know we're supposed to feel a certain way, we almost put up a wall to that as well. Um, and so I think this is the perfect example of, of letting us feel that on our own in solitude, just as Crusoe. I think that could be maybe the best definition of what sentimentality is. Sentimentality, as defined by Hannah, it is being spoon-fed emotions. Readers don't like or want to be spoon-fed emotions. They want to see some glimmer of it and intuit, oh, that's the emotion. I I get it. Like They can import it themselves. They don't need to be talked down to or spoon-fed. The moment we're spoon-fed is like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Shut up. You know, this is now beyond. Yeah. Okay. Dreams are the worst. We should speed up here. Horrible. But then I dreamed of things like slitting a baby's throat, mistaking it for a baby goat. Why include that in a poem? What poetic work is that horrible moment doing? Again, it's a horrible thing that he mentions and then moves away from to what poetic effect? Definitely, I think it leaves us shocked and horrified. And maybe, again, let's into the psychological state of Crusoe or Bishop in this moment. And I don't know. I think it also taps into maybe those kind of darker, I don't know if it's instincts or just tendencies or whatever it is that I think we each have that maybe are brought out in these like really psychologically trying situations that are really hard to maybe articulate most of the time or to really be honest about. Um, And this is honest, but it doesn't dwell on it. It kind of moves quickly. I love that. I mean, if we were trapped on an island for 20 years, we would, this would be painful in 30 different ways. And, And you can't describe this kind of pain, this kind of mental or emotional pain, but you can say, I'll tell you the dreams I started having were like this. And as soon as we get those images, those Mm. images are flooded with all of those emotions that we can't quite name. We think people say a picture paints a thousand words. It's like an image paints a thousand emotions. You know, Mm. we think, oh, that's how tortured you were. That's how that's how rocky things got for you. But also what you say, Rachel, is great too about how it it's doing the exact same stifling work that she's she's doing in one art. Like it got so bad for me that I can only kind of peek at it with one eye and I have to keep going. It's not too hard. You know, <laughs> write it. Force yourself to write it, you know? So yeah. the less he talks about these things, the more obviously traumatic they are for him. 
sure. I think. But just when I, I okay, I, I'm my goal is to give the most 15 minutes. So in five minutes, I'll shut up about this film. <laughs> okay. Just just when I thought I couldn't stand it, another minute longer. Friday came. Mm-hmm. Accounts of that have everything all wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the best part of the poem. <laughs> Friday was nice. <laughs> Friday was nice, and we were friends. Now, please tell me this is a horrible question because it's like read my mind. Why are those my favorite lines in the poem? Friday was nice. Friday was nice and we were friends. I, like I, I've probably read this poem a hundred times and I just, every time I read those, I laugh and want to start crying at the same time. Why are those my absolute favorite lines? Read my um, mind, in other words. I don't know, maybe because they are so mundane in this um, kind of realm of, I don't know, hyper imagery. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's an it's a poem in which she compares water spouts to sacerdotal cathedrals of glass. So we know that she's capable of like imagistic fireworks. Right. And in the context of that kind of imagery, a phrase like Friday is Friday was nice repeated two times. <laughs> I feel like I'm being punched. I don't know. H- Hannah, what what would you add? I was just going to say right because we do know that bishop is so capable that Friday was was so good and we could compare it to so many wonderful things, but it was like, it's, it's too good. And, and now that it, it's gone, maybe we don't want to remember. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just remember that it was nice and, and move on. It's like my, my oldest kid is only, well, my kids are already doing this. My daughter is six and I don't know if she's already having crushes or pretending to have crushes, but <laughs> it happens in kindergarten. You know, I remember being in kindergarten. She'll bring up certain boys um, in her class in a tone of voice that I think, oh, that's very interesting. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask her very innocent, tonally neutral questions like, so is this boy nice to you? And I can tell that her answers are very much like this. He's nice. And the subtext, the, the, the intonation in her voice means, can we please change the subject? <laughs> you know, yeah. this is, that's what I'm hearing here. He was nice. And the lips were like, Let's move on. You know, we must yeah. move on. It's just so great. Yeah. Friday was nice and we were friends. If only he had been a woman. Exclamation mark. So sad. I just find that so sad. I wanted to propagate my kind and so did he, I think. Poor boy. He'd pet the baby goats sometimes and race with them or carry one around. Pretty to watch. He had a pretty body. He's on this island in which there's kind of one kind of everything. I don't know if this is like an anti-Eden you know, they're in this little garden, this little island, and things are getting to procreate. Goats are having babies, you know. Everything is getting to multiply except for him. So it's another form of torture or something. Or another, it's another form of isolation, compounding the solitude. Well, there's a line, he had a pretty body. And interesting, like, if only he was a woman, yes, obviously the sexual desire, but also maybe the sexual attraction, saying um, he had a pretty body. But knowing that, you know, they couldn't have children. This reminds me of a bishop didn't want to be labeled as a lesbian, but did have female lovers. And it's right. the moment of kind of expressing that, you know, maybe this attraction to the same sex, but maybe also for social reasons, feeling maybe unable to be sexually fulfilled. That's right. She, she was openly gay. I mean, she, you know, she was living from, I'm not quite sure, the 20s to the 70s, maybe that I might be slightly wrong there. And she wasn't in the closet in any real sense, but you're absolutely right. She didn't want to be labeled as a quote unquote gay writer, or she thought this label was kind of reductive in a way. Yeah. And I imagine that, yeah, in the 60s, um, I mean, even now, it, 
there there are societal pressures that exist now and would have existed then times three or four, you know, and would make you feel even more alienated than normal, that would make you feel even more isolated and to not be able to fully announce your love or desire the same way that everyone else seems to be allowed to would feel imprisoning in a way. Certainly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So this goes back to your comment, Rachel, about this poem is about Crusoe, but I mean, maybe this is one thing we're learning from this book. Elizabeth Bishop is teaching us that if we want to write topics about our own lives that are very emotional and fraught, maybe we have to tell them obliquely. Otherwise they're too, too sentimental or too raw or too. Yeah. We just have to kind of tell, tell it slant as Dickinson would say, or from an oblique angle. Um, And then one day they came and took us off. So now I live here, right on this other Island and the knife there on the shelf, it reeked of meaning, like a crucifix, it lived. So these all objects that I had and prized and praised seem so meaningful, and now they're like meaningless. How many years did I beg it, implore it not to break? I knew each nick and scratch by heart, etc. The local museums asked me to leave everything to them. The flute, the knife, the shriveled shoes, my shedding goatskin trousers, moths have gotten the fur. The parasol that took me such a time remembering the way the ribs should go. It still will work, but folded up looks like a plucked and skinny fowl, another extremely good simile. How can anyone want such things? Look at these last two lines. They devastate me every time. And Friday, my dear Friday, died of measles 17 years ago come March. The love of his life, um, he can't talk about it. That's what happens to me at the end. It's yet another example of this less is more, this kind of, if you want to, it's so emotional to me precisely because the emotions are not dwelled on and even ignored. Yeah, the emotions are ignored, and therefore it's like I want to burst into tears. Yeah, once again, it just fits really well into this idea. All of these things that once meant so much are now just at the speculation of others, mm-hmm. and and where I am now has changed so much. And, and included in that is Friday because that's when they came in contact. Yeah, it's so sad. <laughs> the moose, um, Hannah, absolutely stunning poem. I'll be very happy to ha- to hear you read it. Okay. And then after you read it, tell us exactly the same things, why you love it, why it's so great, and what it's teaching us about how to write poetry. All right, perfect. The Moose. From narrow provinces of fish and bread and tea, home of the long tides where the bay leaves the sea twice a day and takes the herrings long rides, where if the river enters or retreats in a wall of brown foam, depends on if it meets the bay coming in, the bay not at home, where silted red, sometimes the sun sets facing a red sea, and others veins of flats lavender, rich mud and burning rivulets, on red gravelly roads, down roads of sugar maples, past clapboard farmhouses and neat clapboard churches, bleached ridged as clamshells, past twin silver birches, through late afternoon a bus journeys west. The windshield flashing pink, pink glass glancing off of metal, brushing the dented flank of blue beat up enamel. Down hollows, uprises, and waits, patient, while a lone traveler gives kisses and embraces to seven relatives and a collie supervises. Goodbye to the elms, to the farm, to the dog. The bus starts, the light grows richer. The fog, shifting, salty, thin, comes closing in. Its cold, round crystals form and slide and settle in the white hen's feathers, in gray glazed cabbages on the cabbage roses and lupins like apostles. 
The sweet peas cling to their wet white string on the whitewashed fences. Bumblebees creep inside the foxgloves and evening commences. One stop at Bass River. Then the economies, lower, middle, upper, five islands, five houses, where a woman shakes a tablecloth out after supper. A pale flickering, gone, the Tantramar marshes and the smell of salty hay. An iron bridge trembles and a loose plank rattles, but doesn't give way. On the left, a red light swims through the dark, a ship's port lantern. Two rubber boots show, illuminated, solemn. A dog gives one bark. A woman climbs in with two market bags, brisk, freckled, elderly. A grand night, yes, sir, all the way to Boston. She regards us amicably. Moonlight as we enter the New Brunswick woods, hairy, scratchy, splintery, moonlight and mist caught in them like lamb's wool on bushes in a pasture. The passengers lie back, snores some long sighs. A dreamy divagation begins in the night, a gentle auditory slow hallucination. And the creakings and noises of old conversation, not concerning us, but recognizable somewhere back in the bus grandparents' voices, uninterruptedly talking in eternity. Names being mentioned, things cleared up finally. What he said, what she said, who got pensioned. Deaths, deaths, and sicknesses. The year he remarried, the year something happened. She died in childbirth. That was the son lost when the schooner foundered. He took to drink, yes, she went to the bad. When Amos began to pray in the store and finally the family had to put him away. Yes, that peculiar affirmative yes. A sharp indrawn breath, half grown, half a sentence. A sentence that means life's like that, we know it, also death. Talking the way they talked in the old feather bed, peacefully, on and on, dim lamplight in the hall, down in the kitchen, the dog tucked in her shawl. Now it's all right now even to fall asleep, just as on all these nights. Suddenly, the bus driver stops with a jolt, turns off his lights. A moose has come out of the impenetrable wood and stands there, looms rather, in the middle of the road. It approaches, it sniffs at the bus's hot hood, towering, antlerless, high as a church, homely as a house, or safe as houses. A man's voice assures us, perfectly harmless, some of the passengers exclaim in whispers, childishly, softly, sure are big creatures. It's awfully plain. Look, it's a she. Taking her time, she looks the bus over, grand, otherworldly. Why, why do we feel, we all feel, this sweet sensation of joy? Curious creatures, says our quiet driver, rolling his R's. Look at that, would you? Then he shifts gears for a moment longer, by craning backward, the moose can be seen. On the moonlit muckadum, there's a dim smell of moose, an acrid smell of gasoline. Okay. Wonderful. That is not an easy poem to read. You did such a great job. Um, yes, please celebrate it for a few minutes. Okay. When I was reading this poem, I was just stunned by the description. We hear so many good things, rich mud and burning rivulets, bleached, ridged as clamshells, sweet peas cling to the string the woman shaking a tablecloth out after supper so many definitive images that we're seeing right before the bus leaves and as the bus is passing through 
we hear such specific things, even like foxgloves that have bees in them, which as we talked before, the more specific the poem is getting, the more we're able to really love it and relate to it um, and see these images. So I think that was something that really caught me. And then as well, just the way that this poem is structured and, and some of this meter, right? The second line <clears throat> from narrow provinces of fish and bread and tea. I think that's some I am. I am. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. Really demonstrating here, like maybe the monotonous life and, and the simple, simple life that it is that we live in and how this description continues. And, and we don't really get until the fourth stanza, the verb that we need here, a bus journeys West from these narrow provinces at the very beginning, we were filled with this description of life that's going in and going out and it's very on time. And so that's enhanced right by her form and, and her meter. Um, and then we eventually see this moose and like the transcendent power of nature that intrudes in our lives, but also brings us together. Wow. So such great stuff. Yeah. The images like that woman shaking out a tablecloth, you know, we've all been on those bus rides where we just catch glimpses of lives and, and sometimes those glimpses are so emblematic or revealing or suggestive that they haunt us or they, they seem to be windows into real people's lives. You know, I, I've seen that. I know who that woman is, you know, I don't, of course, but I, it's yeah. such a well-chosen image. Yeah. What you say about the form to these small little lines, lots of repetition, even the rhymes, yeah. you're right to say that they might help, they might help embody I th you, you, the word you used was monotony. I think that's great. Or the back and forthness of it all, you know, specificity. You also said, I wanted to highlight that too. The more specific you can get, the better. There's no such thing as too specific. One stop at Bass River, then the economies, lower, middle, upper, five islands, five houses. Those are place names. Do we know where this is? Well, no. I mean, she says New Brunswick, but should we worry that if we're that specific in our poems, we will keep readers out? No, the opposite happens. We read these specific places. Like, oh, this is a specific place. I've been in specific places before too. You know, we're immediately in. We're immediately in. Right. And I love what you say about the verb, like the bus. It's like, why? And, and maybe you already answered this, but why withhold the image of the bus for so long? What effect does this have on you? What poetic work is it doing? What is it teaching you about how to write poems? It's a little, I mean, it's not totally confusing but it's a big, long sentence full of all bit. kinds of images. It's it's a bit confusing. Mm -hmm. Why start us off on such a risky maneuver? Uh, it almost strikes me as whoever's in the bus, the poet speaker, just being so absorbed with what is happening without. Again, yeah, maybe there's monotony, but maybe there's also this, this kind of rapture where we even forget where we are. We lose our sense of place and time. It's like a reverie. Yeah, yeah. it is like a reverie. Mm -hmm. um, here at the beginning, and then we kind of come back to the presence. Um, and, and we do continue the reverie, but it just, yeah. How... I love that. It's great. Reverie is the perfect word. It is dreamlike. It's, mm -hmm. We begin the poem. The poem immediately announces that, yes, this is a real place, and I can even name the places, but it's also slightly archetypal. This is also kind of every, it's kind of dreamlike. And then even the whispered overhearing conversations, She, I think the speaker even literally is a, it goes in and out of sleep and is kind of picking up snatches of conversation. Okay. My last question before I leave you, that's one thing that we'll be talking more about in class when we gather to discuss Bishop is epiphanies. The moose is revelatory. The presence of this moose is revelatory. So we don't have enough time. 
um, in two minutes, can can we talk about a what exactly the moose reveals? What what is what is the nature of the epiphany? And b how does Bishop construct this epiphany out of words? What does she do? And maybe more importantly, what does she not do to give us the sense of a revelatory moment? Maybe perhaps we see here this poem begins with some amazing description of nature, the bay, the sea, the flats, and ends with more description of nature. Like we are surrounded in a sense by nature. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we can be a little alienated from it, right? Like we hear here at the end, an acrid smell of gasoline. Like there's still, yeah. our presence is still different and and can be invasive in a way. That's very good. I think the word otherworldly is very wisely chosen. Taking yeah. her time, she looks the bus over grand, otherworldly. So yeah, we are surrounded by nature. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. And yet this representative of nature, the moose, reminds me that I am not of your world. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of the epiphany. I am not of your world. Yeah, it's interesting. It says, it has the question, why, why do we feel, we all feel this sweet sensation of joy? Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what that means, but it almost reminds me of that moment in class when you had us, you know, thinking about going up in the mountains and having this connection with a deer and having this spiritual connection with nature and maybe realizing that, I don't know, this is a connection that we lack, but it's also so fulfilling right. to connect with another life force. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. How does she pull off such an epiphany? The epiphany is conflicted. It's contradictory, right? So I'm alienated by this moose, maybe even slightly afraid of it, and yet it gives me joy. So maybe what we're learning is that profound emotional epiphanies in our poem need to be multidimensional. They need to have contrast. Mm -hmm. I also think it's important that she phrases it as a question. Why? She doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Imagine the poem saying, taking her time, she looks the bus over grand otherworldly. The reason we feel this sweet sensation of joy is because, you know, if she had distilled an answer and just spoon fed us an answer, wouldn't we immediately say, no, thanks. You're being too. (laughs) The climax of the poem is uncertainty. It's a question. It's, it's a moment of not knowing. This is a very important lesson. I also think there's something about why, why it's like it get the repetition is important there to me. The, The two whys is doing something to me. Bishop took 20 years to write this poem. Isn't that crazy? 20 years. Tweaking and tweaking and revising and tinkering and tinkering. 20 years. So what are we learning? This was this is my final question. Then you can go. Sorry, you're now my hostages. What are what do we learn about how to write poetry? Uh yeah, by learning that she took 20 years to write this poem. Poetry is, um, I think it's a very serious endeavor and it can be a lifetime one or at least part of a lifetime for certain poems. Yeah, it's not so much about maybe rushing and trying to get a poem to a place, maybe we can get it published. You know, maybe that's not the point to create great poetry. I I don't know, we need to live with the poem, let the poem breathe and Mm -hmm. I think really um, labor, you know. Excellent. on our writing, yeah. There are reasons to write poetry that far that are far more important than getting it published. Right. I think, too, we learn that if we experience a moment or we have a moment of reflection and we write about it or we write about certain feelings that we've had in our lives, 
that writing about something takes a lot longer than living it mm-hmm. and okay. bringing something down to paper to be read is right. It's an endeavor mm-hmm. and it's something that is going to continually take place long past a moment we saw a moose or, or yeah. whatever it is that, that we felt touched by. And so if it is, you know, if we do feel something important and we want to write about it, we need to let it continue to live and, and, put on paper. Excellent. So there's no such thing as too much patience, you know, just be patient. I don't want to give the impression that I'm suggesting that every poem we write, we need to take 20 years on. I'm sure other (laughs) of her poems were written much more quickly. You know, Ode to a Nightingale by Keats was written, apparently with good, we have good sources to confirm that it was written in one morning. This isn't the way, way, which is kind of death in both of, I'm realizing now that both of these facts are depressing in different ways. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but you see the point I'm trying to make. There's no one right, right way to do it. Sometimes it takes 20 years. Sometimes we're lucky. The mm-hmm. lightning strikes and we get the poem that we get. So just be open to that kind of, uh, that kind of variety in the writing process. There's no one right way to do this. Right. Thank you both for such a great chat. Have a good weekend. You too. You too. Bye. Bye. And now for the writing prompt. One of Elizabeth Bishop's best and most famous poems is The Moose. We spent some time discussing it in this podcast. Elizabeth Bishop spent 20 years writing this poem. If you read her published letters, you'll find her mentioning this poem to editors and publishers. And then every few years, she'll bring it up again, saying it's coming along. It's mentioned in other letters. People asking her, oh yeah, what about this moose poem that you mentioned years ago you were working on? Eventually, 20 years after its first mention in these letters, it appears in print. One of the ways that Elizabeth Bishop would write poetry is she would paste drafts of her poems along the walls of her house so that she was forced to confront them as she walked back and forth between rooms. She knew that maybe there was a word she was looking for but couldn't find that she needed to complete a certain line or a certain stanza, or a certain image. And so to keep these poems and these gaps in these poems in the front of her mind, she would post them up on her walls. I think the stubbornness and patience to not share poems until you feel like you've gotten them right is admirable. The Roman poet Horace says that we should put work away for 10 years and then come back to it, and only then will we be able to objectively determine whether or not it's worth sharing when we've gained that kind of distance. This is not exactly what Elizabeth Bishop was doing. She was slowly tinkering the whole time along the way. But either way, what I admire about this approach is the stubbornness to get it right, to be committed to a standard and a vision that you will not compromise. So here's the writing prompt, and it might be my favorite writing prompt I've ever given so far in these recordings. Spend 20 years writing a poem. Start a draft now, put it away for a few months, open it up again, try to improve it, post it up on your walls, keep reading, keep finding ways that other poets can teach you about how to improve this poem that you're working on, but commit right now to saying, this poem will be a 20-year work in progress, and be patient. And 20 years from now, see what happens. Elizabeth Bishop is a poet who is much beloved by other poets. There have been many poems written 
in her honor or addressing her or dedicated to her. Perhaps one of the most famous and best is this poem by Robert Lowell called Skunk Hour, and it is for Elizabeth Bishop. Nautilus Island's hermit heiress still lives through winter in her Spartan cottage. Her sheep still graze above the sea. Her son's a bishop. Her farmer is first selectman in our village. She's in her dotage. Thirsting for the hierarchic privacy of Queen Victoria's century, she buys up all the eyesores facing her shore and lets them fall. The season's ill. We've lost our summer millionaire who seemed to leap from an L.L. Bean catalog. His nine-knot yawl was auctioned off to lobstermen. A red fox stain covers Blue Hill. And now our fairy decorator brightens his shop for fall. His fishnets filled with orange cork, orange, his cobbler's bench and all. There is no money in his work. He'd rather marry. One dark night, my Tudor Ford climbed the hill's skull. I watched for love cars. Lights turned down, they lay together, hull to hull, where the graveyard shelves on the town. My mind's not right. A car radio bleats, Love, oh careless love. I hear my ill spirit sob in each blood cell, as if my hand were at its throat. I myself am hell. Nobody's here. Only skunks that search in the moonlight for a bite to eat. They march on their souls up Main Street, white stripes, moonstruck eyes, red fire under the chalk-dry and spar spire of the Trinitarian Church. I stand on top of our back steps and breathe the rich air. A mother skunk with her column of kittens swills the garbage pail. She jabs her wedge head in a cup of sour cream drops her ostrich tail, and will not scare. That's it for now. Next, I'll be chatting with a couple of you about the poetry of Derek Walcott. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, keep experimenting. Don't be afraid to be patient and give poems many, many years. And don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm -hmm.